0: updates on software supply chain incidents, a look at recent Iranian operations, the U.S. Federal Reserve publishes its disclosure rules for banks sustaining cyber incidents, two of the five eyes announce plans for continued even closer cooperation in cyberspace, Johannes Ulrich on attackers using plug authentication modules, our guest is Hatem Naguib, CEO at Barracuda Networks, and a real evil maid seems to have been out and about in Tel Aviv. From the CyberWire Studios at Datatribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire Summary for Friday, November 19th, 2021. Software supply chains are on people's minds this week, and as the week comes to a close... We hear about some particular threats that organizations would do well to be aware of. First, the FBI warns that an APT group with no further attribution has been exploiting a zero-day in FatPipe software since May, at least. Users are encouraged to apply the patches FatPipe issued this week. If the unnamed APT can gain access to FatPipe's router clustering and load-balancing products— They can pivot from there to other targets where the primary interest lies. Second, JFrog's security team found another software supply chain threat, 11 Python libraries behaving badly, stealing Discord tokens, installing remote access shells, and so on. PyPy, the Python package index, has booted the libraries from their portal. JFrog doesn't think that all 11 libraries are the work of a single hand, as there are idiosyncratic differences in the coding that suggest various people at work. Two of the troubling packages abused a relatively new technique, dependency coding, in which attacks register packages with names likely to be used within closed networks. In that case, the attacker's package might be pulled if the organization's packet came to be deleted while the dependency tree had yet to be updated. And third, in what amounts to a threat so much more extensive as to practically amount to a trend, the Microsoft Threat Intelligence Center, Mystic, and the Microsoft Digital Security Unit, DSU, published a report yesterday in which they warn of a significant increase in Iran's targeting of the IT sector. Quote, Iranian threat actors are increasing attacks against IT services companies as a way to access their customers' networks. This activity is notable because targeting third parties has the potential to exploit more sensitive organizations by taking advantage of trust and access in a supply chain. Microsoft has observed multiple Iranian threat actors targeting the IT services sector in attacks that aim to steal sign-in credentials belonging to downstream customer networks to enable further attacks. The Microsoft Threat Intelligence Center and Digital Security Unit Assess this is part of a broader espionage objective to compromise organizations of interest to the Iranian regime. One of the more interesting features of this push is that it's adding targets to Iran's program that hitherto haven't figured significantly in Tehran's intelligence strategy. While some of the countries being targeted are in fact important and traditional rivals of Iran, notably Israel and the United Arab Emirates, others aren't. India, for example, hadn't been of significant interest to Iran's intelligence services until this past summer, but it clearly is now. That's not because of any burgeoning tension or regional rivalry, but simply because India has become an important global IT hub. If you can compromise IT services in India, you have a good chance of being able to pivot to targets of real immediate interest that may have Indian IT services in their own supply chains." Much of the activity aims at credential theft in the interest of further downstream compromise, which is where the real interest lies. Microsoft, we note in passing disclosure, is a CyberWire sponsor. The report on Iranian operations against software supply chains comes at a moment of heightened awareness of Tehran's cyber capabilities. The U.S. Justice Department yesterday unsealed an indictment of two Iranian nationals, Musa Kazimi and Sajad Kashian. On charges connected with disinformation operations, the two men, both of whom work for an Iranian contractor, ran during the last U.S. election cycle. The Justice Department announcement said in part, quote, "As alleged, Kazimi and Kashian were part of a coordinated conspiracy in which Iranian hackers sought to undermine faith and confidence in the. US. presidential elections. Working with others, Kazemi and Kashian accessed voter information from at least one state's voters' database, threatened U.S. voters via email, and even disseminated a fictitious video that purported to depict actors fabricating overseas ballots. Both men are, of course, not in custody, but as Justice observes, they'll spend their days looking over their shoulders and carefully planning international travel to avoid countries that have extradition agreements with the U.S. In any case, Iran is becoming an adversary the U.S. and others are taking more seriously in cyberspace. Mandiant CEO Kevin Mandia gave CNBC a particularly gloomy assessment yesterday afternoon. He said, quote, They're operating with efficiency. They're operating with malware that can be updated, adding that, they have a framework where they can update their malware super fast so they can be very efficient, leapfrogging our defenses as they learn, End quote. Yesterday afternoon, the U.S. Federal Reserve issued its long-anticipated final rule on computer incident disclosures. Effective May 1, 2022, banks will have 36 hours to notify regulators that they've sustained an incident that has materially affected or are reasonably likely to material affect the viability of a banking organization's operations, its ability to deliver banking products and services, or the stability of the financial sector. Banks are also required to notify customers as soon as possible of any incident likely to affect services for four or more hours. GCHQ and U.S. Cyber Command have reaffirmed the long-standing Anglo-American commitment to cooperative cyber operations. Meetings at Fort Meade, Maryland, headquarters of both NSA and U.S. Cyber Command, included on the British side, Director GCHQ Sir Jeremy Fleming and General Sir Patrick Sanders, Commander of U.K. Strategic Command, and on the U.S. side, General Paul Nakasone, director of the U.S. National Security Agency and commander of U.S. Cyber Command. The leaders issued a joint statement with a short set of talking points. Quote, "...as like-minded allies for two centuries, the United Kingdom and the United States share a close and enduring relationship. Our two nations today face strategic threats in an interconnected digital world that seems to undermine our shared principles, norms, and values." We agree that strategic engagement in cyberspace is crucial to defending our way of life by addressing these evolving threats with a full range of capabilities. To carry this out, we will continue to adapt, innovate, partner, and succeed against evolving threats in cyberspace. We will achieve this by planning enduring combined cyberspace operations that enable a collective defense and deterrence and impose consequences on our common adversaries who conduct malicious cyber activity. As democratic cyber nations, the U.K. and U.S. are committed to doing so in a responsible way, in line with international law and norms, setting the example for responsible state behavior in cyberspace. End quote. The emphasis on deterrence and imposition of consequences on common adversaries is particularly noteworthy. Sometimes insider threats show the convergence of cyber-espionage and traditional espionage. One such case, as close to a literal evil-made attack as one might wish to find, has surfaced in Israel, where Haaretz reports a cleaner working in the residence of Defense Minister Gantz is charged with espionage for having offered to assist the Iranian cyber-threat group Black Shadow. According to Security Week, The Israeli security service Shin Bet said that the accused spy failed to obtain any classified information. The accused, Omri Gorin Gorachovsky, is said to be an ex-con with an appropriate criminal record, which has raised questions as to how he came to be hired in the first place. The Times of Israel reports that Shin Bet is reviewing the ways in which background checks are conducted— There are probably lessons to be learned for insider threat mitigation programs generally. Whether there'll be new lessons or familiar ones remains to be seen. If you look at the three traditional motives for betrayal that counterintelligence officers remember by the acronym MICE for Money, Ideology, Compromise, and Ego, and we know, we know, you skeptics are hollering, hey, why does anybody do anything? Still, the framework is a useful way of organizing security thinking. Well then, Mr. Gorachowski is said to have been motivated by money with a capital M. Watch yourself, insiders. Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. It is that time of year when people tend to start looking back at what this year has brought to try to help plan for the coming year. It's been an active, accelerating year in cybersecurity, with ransomware top of mind for many. Hatem Nagid is CEO of Barracuda Networks, and he shares these insights.
1: On the ransomware side, we've definitely seen the evolution of that attack both in its level of sophistication and I think in in the scale with which it's being leveraged, it's interesting. I think from from a lot of our customers' perspective, they think and I think they have a frame of reference about the type of attacks that occur. That it's you know an individual hacker or somebody going in to try and uh, and create the malfeasance that occurs within their environment. And what we've clearly seen is the growth of these uh, almost corporate criminal gangs now that have. Leveraging um, and weaponizing the capabilities to deliver ransomware as a service, and I think they've uh, they've clearly taken advantage of uh, what I would say is you know at, at some level digital transformation. At other levels, a, a significant amount of uh, of transformation change that's occurred at the customer base with COVID, people having to work from home, uh, moving to cloud for for many many capabilities, and already stretched security organizations have to take more on in order to protect the important assets uh, that they manage for uh, for their customers. And so with that we've seen uh, an increase in the number of attacks. We've seen uh, an increase in the size and amount of ransomware asks that are coming in and I think what we've also seen is a much broader number of targets being pursued by this uh, that has really, I think, uh, surprised, uh, unfortunately, some of these customers, but by and large has been uh, kind of the soft underbuilding now starting to being taken advantage of by these criminal operations. I'm curious what you're seeing
0: in terms of your customers kind of turning those knobs, deciding where are they going to spend their resources, their time, their attention for protecting themselves against these things. Are, are those techniques evolving themselves?
1: Yeah, I think they are. I think it's a really good question, actually. I think customers have evolved from what I would refer to as kind of the classic, we'll put a firewall in an antivirus and a backup as a security strategy to recognizing that they have to be you know, as sophisticated or one step ahead of the attackers, which means they have to look at multiple threat vectors and ensure that they've got a comprehensive security strategy. What that's typically meant for them is to, to look at technologies uh, that allow them to put security closer to what would be referred to as the edge. And I mean edge not just from an infrastructure perspective, but from the device, the person, and the application and where it resides. And to be able to uh, really look at the behavioral aspects of what's happening for each of those elements. So a great example of that, is that you know is that we've seen a significant amount of our customers leverage our our Sentinel product, which allows for BEC anti-phishing and really looking at behavioral anomalies to determine when account takeovers have occurred and how to remediate against that versus just the classic gateway type of solution, which would look at something coming in, is it good or bad, and then stop it. Similar types of things within the context of protecting against uh, attacks for applications or attacks against the infrastructure. Really building intelligence to understand what's happening and being able to provide both intelligence back to the customers in terms of how to remediate it, but also you know d- delivering that in an automated aspect. I think the one more thing I would just add to that is that data has become significantly more important in terms of what customers are storing and how they're storing it. So whereas before they would have looked at backup as just an element of how do I make sure I'm managing all of the entities in my organization and I've got them in some capability I can restore. Now it's become more important to understand, well, what exactly is sitting where? Is my employee data also being backed up? How am I managing the privacy concerns that I've got of my customers? As you look ahead to
0: the next year or so, is is it is it more of the same? Do you think there's going to be additional adjustments that need to be made? Any Any thoughts on that?
1: Well, we're definitely seeing, I think, a broader cross-section of customers engaging more actively in, in addressing uh, their security concerns. you know it, it, I think you know the industrial companies becoming targets, um, you know companies that are, would typically not be considered the most technology sophisticated so less, uh, less prone to, to these types of challenges have now seen themselves become much more prone. We've seen significant investment in, um, in education, sled, government, which I think is a is, is a very positive sign, and I think what we're also seeing is, is on two fronts. One uh, is good cooperation in the industry to, to to help the customers deal with this. I think everybody sees security as a as an everybody problem, and 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 not just you know one individual company is going to be able to address that. So you see the levels of investments we're making, but you also see other companies making substantial investments to ensure that they're providing the best capabilities from a security perspective.
0: That's Hatem Nagid from Barracuda Networks. There's a lot more to this conversation. If you want to hear more, head on over to Cyberwire Pro and sign up for Interview Selects, where you get access to this and many more extended interviews. Visit vanta.com slash cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber. And joining me once again is Johannes Ulrich. He's the Dean of Research at the Sands Technology Institute and also the host of the ISC Stormcast podcast, Johannes, always great to have you back. Uh, I want to check in with you today about attackers who are abusing PAM,
2: that is uh, pluggable authentication modules. What can you share with us today? So, uh, PAM is a feature that's common to many Unix and Unix like operating systems. Uh, Mac OS, for example, uses it. And it allows you to configure what kind of authentications you accept, for example, to log into a system, uh, to become an administrator. So it's very flexible in that form. It allows for things like uh, multi-factor authentication to be implemented very easily or support for specific hardware like uh, YubiKeys. The Hmm. problem, of course, with flexibility is with a lot of flexibility comes a lot of responsibility and risk. Attackers sometimes use this flexibility against you in order to gain persistent access to systems. Hmm. And, And so what are they doing here? So in this case, they essentially reconfigure uh, this uh, PAM system. They either add additional modules that'll give them access. uh, So if they are coming from a particular IP address, if they're coming uh, with a particular client, they're just provided access without asking for credentials. But uh, probably uh, more sinister, there is a special uh, PAM module called PAM steal. And well, steal, it's going to steal stuff, it's going to steal your credentials. Of course, the these modules have access to the username and password that you typed in. And as a result, uh, this module would just take this username and password and save it to a simple text file for the attacker then to retrieve later.
0: And so what are your recommendations here, both for not getting
2: yourself infected in the first place, but then mitigation as well? Yeah, so... In general, of course, this is something that an attacker needs to have administrative or root access uh, to a system in the first place in order to manipulate this. Uh, But... um If that happens, then file monitoring is absolutely important here. So uh, check uh, these uh, files uh, with some kind of file integrity tool to make sure that nobody is modifying these configurations. Luckily, uh, those files are very static. So it's not one of those set of files that gets updated all the time. It's relatively easy to configure a file integrity tool uh, to monitor these files. All right. Well, Johannes Ulrich, thanks so much for
0: joining us. Thank you. cyberwire for links to all of today's stories check out our daily briefing at the cyberwire.com be sure to check out this weekend's research saturday and my conversation with nicholas boucher and ross anderson from the university of cambridge we're going to be discussing their research on trojan source that's research saturday check it out the Cyberwire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing Cyberwire team is Elliot Peltzman, Trey Hester, Brandon Karp, Peru Prakash, Justin Saby, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. I will be off next week enjoying the U.S. Thanksgiving holiday with family and friends. Trey Hester will be filling in on the mic. Thanks for listening.